Hey, good morning, everybody. Um, uh, before I jump in, I felt compelled to share something. Um, so I have a lot of moments throughout the week where I feel like God says something. I'm like, hey, that's pretty cool. Um, and if I always shared my moments, I pr- my sermons would probably be like an hour and a half, but I feel compelled to share this one. So this isn't part of my sermon, but I was in my office preparing for this message on well, throughout the week, but this happened to me on Tuesday, and I had this open, I was flipping through it, and I was, and I paused, and I thought, we have the Bible. That's what I mean by moments. Sometimes it just happens, I'm like, wow, right? Like, but, but seriously, though, I, I want to say that. Like, what we believe that we have is a bound, written, we have this in electronic form, we have multiple translations, in English and in other languages, if you read in other languages, and accessible to us is the word of God in which he has made known to us. And we have direction for our lives. And we know what, our, what the purpose is for all of this. And while sometimes it's hard to swallow, like I'm sure that this whole sermon series will be through the minor prophet Amos. Like this is everything. And so before I do jump into the message, I want to just pause and just tell you that we have God's word. And I hope you feel ever grateful uh, for it. I was this week for sure. And you know, it's crazy that you know, we have God's word and we can know him. And we can know what our lives are meant to be through this, through this text. And so let me just uh, pray for us as we begin. And I'll just pray in thanksgiving for, for the word that the Lord gives us and uh, for this service. Uh, God, thank you for allowing us to be here together. Um, we're really grateful for this church and for these friends. Um, and yeah, we're so thankful for your word. Oftentimes we just kind of let it collect us and sit in the corner, but um, we want to see it for the treasure that it truly is. We want to love it and hunger for it because it's you. It, it, it teaches us who you are, God. Ultimately, it's not about pieces of paper and a bound book, but it's about the God and the Father that we have in heaven who we can learn about and communicate with and know on an intimate and deep level. We thank you that although you are not here in the physical flesh, God, that we can still know you in full. And we thank you that we have the freedoms in this country to be able to talk about it and teach it and share it with each other. And we thank you for this specific hour, for this specific place that we can come, open it up and see what word you have for us. Thank you for the way that you provide for us in abundance, O oh God. And we pray that your word would just be our treasure, that we just adore, and that we fall in love with the God who speaks it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So back when I was in college, um, I took a missions trip for half of the summer um, to Taiwan. I had a friend who went there every summer. He invited me to come along, and I was like, sure. And we went, and we did a number of different things over the couple months, uh, mainly having local outreach and evangelism efforts to uh, reach out to the community. And there would be different opportunities or reasons for people to come. And one of them was um, the fact that there were native English speakers coming to to Taiwan to teach uh, people how to speak English, and we would use the Bible as, as the English text to, to use as lessons, and so people would come, and there were also some local, well, many locals who also helped, members of the church who helped us with our evangelism and missions reach, outreach. There was this one girl there who uh, was roughly my age, and she spoke English really, really well, but she was a local of 
from Taiwan, and she lived there. And so one of the evenings after our, our stuff, I asked her, like, hey, like, your English is really, really great. It's so much better than everyone else's. Like, did you, like, do a semester abroad? Did you ever live in the States? Do you, or anything like that? She's like, no, I've, I've never been. And it's like, oh, wow. Like, and, and I asked her, like, would you ever want to go? And she actually's like, no. And she, she gave me this really, like, e- emotional, almost, like, disgusted response of how she would never want to come to America. And she even made it clear to me, like, even on vacation, I have no interest. You know, like, I was like, wow, I'm kind of surprised. Like, why? You don't even want to go on vacation? Like, even just to see? She's like, no, like, I hate the culture there. So, like, how do you, in my conversation, progress? I'm like, well, if you've never been there, how do you hate the culture that you don't know? And so she started explaining things that she sees on TV and through the media. She, she named, by name, she mentioned shows on MTV that she's seen episodes of. She talked about movies and things that she saw in news stories about things that were happening in the States. And she went on and on about all these reasons why I get a clear enough picture of what America is like that I have no interest in ever going there. I'll go to Paris instead or something. And so... Through this experience with her, you know, I started kind of defending, like, hey, like, I'm American, like, I love the States, and so not everyone is like that, like, the media outlets, just, you know, they twist things, and she just wouldn't have it. it. Okay, fine, I get it, not every American citizen is like that, but I get enough from the TV and the computer and the news and the screens that tell me or give me enough of a window for me to see that at least the mainstream is a part of a culture, is a culture that I want nothing to do with. So it made me realize that when people are outside of a particular culture or bubble, when people have an outsider's perspective, that it's different from those who are inside. They see things a little bit differently. And so it it naturally got my thoughts to connect to think, okay, well, how does the unbelieving world see the church? If they're the ones outside of our culture and we're kind of stuck inside of this church bubble, how does the unbelieving world view us? If others see my life or your life, or like our coworkers or friends or family members who are not followers of Jesus, what do they see? And I guess my main question is, do they see what the Bible describes and prescribes us as? What the Bible describes and pre- pre- describes and prescribes through the minor prophet Amos is a God who hates injustice for the poor. He hates it. And calls for God's people, this is what is prescribed to us, to take action. The Bible describes a God who passionately defends the orphan, the widow, the stranger, the sick. The Bible describes the people of God who are called to be his ambassadors. We even sang it, are his hands and feet. And the Bible prescribes that every follower, every disciple, every person who says that I'm a believer in Jesus to be responsible in being his hands and feet and caring for the poor. So Amos is a prophet, like many others, frankly, that gets to the core of God's heart and his burning passion to fight for and love on those who are suffering in this world, those who are bearers of injustice and oppressed, and also demanding a response from his followers. So today, in the second week of our four-week series in Amos, I want to dive specifically into this. God's heart and his anger, his defense, his, his passion For the poor, for those who are oppressed and suffering, those who cannot fight for themselves, and our response and our call, our command to be the church, to be his hands and feet, to actually respond. And what I hope for is that we can actually apply this message immediately in different ways as we grow in our walk with the Lord so that the outside world, those who see you that are not a part of the family of God, 
I actually do see people who reflect God's heart and his love for those who are in need. So let's dive in. We're going to be reading from Amos chapter 5. We're going to be reading a chunk. Um, we're going to start with like half of that in the beginning, and then in the latter half we're going to read um, the rest of that chunk. But we're going to be reading from verse 7. So Amos chapter 5, starting from verse 7. And in this part we're just going to read through 15, and then we'll read the rest later on. So Amos chapter 5, verse 7. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. But you levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good not evil that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts, and perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, God, for your word. All right, so firstly, uh, my first point is pretty clear. God hates the oppression of the poor. I think we get that message loud and clear from this passage in Amos. Frankly, the entire book of Amos that God hates. And I use the word hate on purpose. It's not dislike. It's not uncomfortable with. He hates the oppression of the poor. So in very much likeness of the model that the prophets use. First, they come forth saying, hey, I'm speaking on behalf of this person. It is God Almighty. And so he describes and kind of sets the stage with, you ought to listen to what I have to say and what message I have from this person, this being, because he is powerful. So he sets the stage. Um, just listen along. I'll read it here. He describes God. He who made the Pleiades and the Orion, the constellations, the stars, the universe, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day to night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, The Lord is his name. So basically, Amos says to Sage to say, hey, the creator God who made the stars in the heavens, in the skies, who calls forth the waters of the sea and land and separates them, who makes the sun rise and fall, who created all things, who is all powerful. He's the one who's speaking. He's the one who's upset at this. He's the one who has a message. And what is the crime? What is he upset about? Let's look at verses 10 through 12. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Their crime, what God is upset about, is oppression and manipulation of the poor. So we see God's heart burn in anger towards this. Tax, I mean, in review, taxing the poor. 
Instead of giving on their straw and grain, things, basic necessities to live and for them to, when they're already disadvantaged, oppressing the innocent, taking bribes, depriving the poor of justice in the courts. Where else in this world ought you, ought you to have justice but in court? Right? Depriving the poor of justice in the courts of all places. So God comes and he's upset and he's wrathful. So in reading this, we see the point. I hope you see it. God hates the oppression of the poor. But as studiers or students of the Bible, our next logical progression is, okay, well, why does this matter to me? Or what should I do about it? I think with the prophets, it's easy for us to kind of keep distance. Because, well... When did I tax the poor on the grain, right? Like, when did I take a bribe or I'm not in court, like, depriving them of justice? How does this relate to us? So it's funny how it's graduation Sunday because there's this running joke. I mean, in those of us who haven't graduated yet and those of us who did many years ago, all of us, uh, there's this running joke. You know when people say, like, oh, I spent $120,000 uh, in four years of my life for a piece of paper, like, thanks be you, you know, like, and we like to take that Instagram, like, oh, piece of paper with my name in cursive on it, like, thanks, guys, right? And then we joke about how we live and spend all this money and energy in our four years of life into a stupid piece of paper that's made of cardstock, and it's a little bit fancier, and we put it on our refrigerator. The thing is that something that actually relates to all of us even more closely that we don't talk about is actually for a much longer period of your life, you live for a different piece of paper. Do you know what I'm talking about? Your resume. Yes, you give BC and Northeastern and Berkeley thousands of dollars for four years, but you actually spend much more years and more money and more time and more energy in living for a different piece of paper. It's called a resume. And the thing about the resume is that it's a sheet in which you spend all the effort into writing down what you did, what you accomplished, in order to prove or show who you are, to prove your candidacy, um, to prove and to show what you are capable of doing because of what you've already did in the past and what you are doing currently. And that's what it is. And we spend all this energy and time and effort into making sure the resume is strong, that it's edited, that it's kept up to date. Did I put what I last did on this thing? Oh, it's missing. I have to add that. We make sure that it's visually appealing and pleasing to the eye so that the employer, the, the HR department, or, the, or the, the school can look at all of the things that we did that shows who I am. This is how good I am. Look at all I did. So that most closely relates to you know, the workplace skills and maybe schools. The interesting thing to me is that oftentimes when it comes to our character, we flip the, the, the script. When it comes to our skills in the workplace or in the classroom, we like to show, here's what I did, here's what I did, look at me. But when it comes to our character, oftentimes, not always, but a lot of times, the conversation flips into being or making an argument for ourselves based upon what we don't do or an argument for ourselves to prove our worth based upon all the bad things we've done well to avoid. So maybe you've been a part of the conversation, and just using relationships as a simple example, among friends. Maybe you're talking with another friend, and you're both complaining, and you're saying like, oh, like, you know, judging this other person. He or she is such a bad friend. I know I'm not perfect. I have my mistakes, but at least I would never do what they did. 
So I've avoided this heinous crime. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm a good friend in essence because I didn't do that. Or in marriage, something that is really tough and and, and unhealthy. I know I'm very guilty of this is we define ourselves based on what we don't do. I'm not, I don't abuse my wife. I don't speak crudely to her. But the question is, what do you do to be a good husband? Not what are you not doing? Similarly with the friendships, what are you doing as a friend to be a good friend versus what you're not doing? Okay, I get it. You don't backstab them or you don't do this, but what are you doing to be a good friend? We have the tendency to defend our case based upon not doing the bad things. But as we look at this text in Amos, yeah, okay, maybe you're not levying taxes or whatever the 2017 American like young person translation of that might be. Maybe you don't go and shop at stores that are oppressive to uh, the poor or participate in systemic elements of injustice or oppression. Maybe you don't steal from homeless people on the street. We get it. We're all in agreement of what we don't do. But the question that I think Amos begs us and challenges us with is what are you doing? Don't fill the resume of, oh, hey, like employer, I don't steal. I won't take pencils from the office. Last time at my job, I, I, I didn't come late. No, it's I came on time. I will give this. I will give that. Here's what I'm capable of because I've already proven my track record. And when the Lord comes down, he's, he's upset and he's speaking through the prophet Amos to this culture that is really doing well, frankly. Pastor Hojin mentioned that last week. That he's speaking to Israel in a time where, where financially they're doing well and religiously they're actually doing well. They're going to church. They're, they're, they're participating in small groups. They're going to worship services on Friday nights. They're actually doing all those things well. But they're neglecting the suffering world around them. So what are we doing? God wants deliverance for the poor. He hates the oppression. What are we doing to change that? Secondly, and easy enough to remember, we're just changing one word or the subject of the, of the phrase, we must hate oppression for the poor. So first, God hates oppression for the poor. And it's easy enough, like we've got to, like the Lord, In the likeness of our Heavenly Father, as his disciples, we too must hate the oppression of the poor. When you hate things, it shows, right? Your best friends know what you hate. Your spouse knows what you hate, what annoys you, what bugs you the most. Your roommates know exactly what like strikes the the chord in you that makes you angry. When you hate things, you talk about it, you grumble, you complain. You tell other people, you tweet about it. Oh my God, I hate traffic on 93 every morning. You shouldn't be tweeting while driving, by the way. But anyways, like you hate it and you talk about it. It's not secretly kept in your, in, inside. When you hate something, it manifests itself outwardly. You steam up, your face turns red. You, some of us even shake depending on how angry we are. It shows and it starts to change things. And you start to take action when you hate something. Look at what Amos or God through Amos prescribes of us. He says, seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate evil. Love good. Maintain justice or in the courts or be just. Fight for justice. Protect justice. Hate evil. Love good. 
Maintain justice. We're called to join God in his hatred of the oppression of the poor and allow it to manifest itself in the way that we live our lives and to take action, to be lovers of the good, to be those who fight for justice and those who are unable to fight for themselves. We've got to be actors in the story, endurers, people who are not sitting idly by and watching as everything happens. Up on the screen... Uh, is a photo of one of the most famous and formerly beloved college football coaches of all time. I assume maybe a decent number of you know who he is. His name is Joe Paterno. He's no longer alive. He passed. If you don't know him, if you do know him, you know everything I'm about to say. If you don't, you, you, he, this man, he was, he was like a god in Pennsylvania. Uh, statues made of him. Like flowers left after his statues all the time. People taking pictures with it. Things named after him. He, he, he was nicknamed, had like this beloved nickname, Joe Pa. He was just a, not only in Pennsylvania, but just a living legend in the world of sports and college sports, especially as a college football coach at Penn State University. And in November 2011, all of that changed. His fame didn't change. In fact, maybe he got more famous, but his Adoration got changed. It took a complete turn of events when one of his assistant coaches, Jerry Sandusky, was indicted on 52 counts of child molestation. And those who came forward, uh, young boys throughout, it was from 1994 to 2009, so a 15-year span. I mean, that's what was talked about in court, but people say that it could have started actually in the 70s. So decades worth of child abuse. So this story, maybe you saw, it was on national news and headlines for weeks. The, you know, the fall of one of the most prestigious football programs in the country. One of the most beloved coaches in sports history with skeletons in his closet. Abuse kept hidden potentially for decades since the 70s. So Paterno was quickly fired from Penn State. He said, oh, I'm going to resign after next year. And the university was like, no, you're not going to resign. We're going to cut you off. He actually passed later. And he was not the one who abused the children. As far as we know, he did not touch a single person inappropriately. It was Jerry Sandusky's misconduct that blew everything up. But where Joe Paterno plays a role in the story is that he didn't stop him. He didn't go to the police and it was proven that he knew all along that this was happening. Some people actually protested the fact that he got fired, saying he didn't do anything wrong, that he wasn't the one abusing the boys. But that was exactly the point, isn't it? That he didn't do anything. Joe Pa sat around and let his assistant associate or assistant coach abuse children, and he didn't do anything about it. He sat there and he watched So I wonder if he hated abuse enough. I think this is a very sobering reality check for all of us in the church to be reminded that privileged people are responsible people. And when we are given a place of privilege, we are given a responsibility, and frankly, silence or inactivity is not an excuse. There isn't any place in Scripture where God says, oh, Just as long as you're not the one doing it, you're in the clear. But he holds us accountable. He says, you are my people. 
who are called to be ambassadors in my hands and feet, actors in my stead, because you follow me. We cannot be the bystanders watching and allowing things to happen and pass by. So in application, I just want to say this is easy enough to remember, right? To do something. If we're going to apply this text, if we're actually going to take God through Amos seriously and at his word, shouldn't we just do something? And I guess in, in, in terms of giving you some more of a guide in terms of what to do, my first question is, what do you hate about this world? What do you hate? What pisses you off? What part of the Lord's sensitivity and, and heart and love and burning, even anger for the, for the oppressed has he given you that, you that you can embody and grow? Do you hate child abuse? Would you have done something about this because you hate it so much? Sex trafficking, child labor? Do you hate the fact that there's communities with no clean water? Or communities that don't have access? Or kids that don't go to school or have no access to, poor, or to good education? Or health care? Do you hate world hunger? Do you hate racism or sexism? Homelessness? Unfair wages and working conditions? What do you hate? What injustice about this world makes you angry? Let's not just sit idly by and let's do something. Let's Go to the websites. Let's Google. Let's pick up a phone. Let's go into an organization. Let's talk to somebody who might be able to point you in the right direction. Let's figure out if it's, if it's volunteering that is my something. Is it fundraising and sending money or donating money myself? Is it spreading awareness? Whatever. What, what is your call to alleviate suffering in this world? And joining God and his hatred for it and also his absolute love for the people themselves. And especially, are we praying? I'm hoping that we apply this message immediately by being a church that lifts up so many prayers that God's ears are being buzzing and filled with righteously angry prayers about God put an end to these particular injustices. And won't you send me and others and the church to help these people? Let's do something. And we've got to see through Amos' prophecy, and, this, and we're now we're going to read the second half, and, and you'll see this, <laughs> it's like loud and clear, that religious observances are no substitute for the love for the poor and the suffering world. Remember what Pastor Hojin said last week, Israel at this time, they were doing so well, and yet this is how harsh the message comes. They were doing well economically, And they were doing well religiously. They were abiding by the law. They were being good Jews, in a sense, and in following the word of God. They were doing everything really well, and yet Amos comes with this, probably, I I, I mean, I don't know, they didn't, we don't have a count, but I assume that they were caught off guard, like, oh my gosh, like, God is so angry, like, I've been doing all this good stuff. Listen to what he says, starting from verse 16. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty says. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. 
Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness. Here's where, I mean, when I was reading this, I was like, oh, like shaking him at boots, right? And this is directly addressing the fact that they thought, hey, we were doing good, aren't we? Verse 21, I hate I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies, our services are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and great offerings, I will not accept them. Though you have choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. If you are anything like me, when I was reading this earlier in this week, you're probably thinking, man, this is serious stuff. Maybe you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe a bit guilty or or fearful. Like, oh man, is God mad at me or is he going to punish me? And I want to ask us to call time out on all those feelings and suppress them just for a moment. And I want to ask you and all of us to take this seriously Not because of the way that I'm speaking. Not because of the harsh language that God uses or that Amos speaks. I want to ask that all of us take this very seriously because all these judgments did happen. But they didn't happen to these people, to the original listeners, to the ones who were guilty of all these specific things. Israel did receive consequences, by the way, for their actions. And they went through exile and lots of craziness in their history they did get punished in some ways but they didn't receive the fullness of god's wrath judah didn't receive the fullness of god's wrath you and i although thousands of years later are just as culpable and guilty did not receive the fullness of god's wrath the judgment and fullness of god's wrath came down on the only person who was fully innocent all of this judgment came down on jesus which is why you and i ought to take this Seriously, the most just person in history, the most compassionate and loving person in history, the one who actually loved the suffering world the most in history, the most righteous person and only sinless person in history to walk the face of the earth, took the punishment of the unjust and both active and inactive oppressors of the poor. Jesus took on the wrath of God. So I hope you don't feel the weightiness of this just because of the harsh language that God uses, but because you're able to see in its fullness how just God really is at the cross. I think it's crazy how so many of us wear crosses. We wear these execution devices around our necks. Some of us had us tattooed to our bodies. But you know why we can do that? You know why? Like, it's like, have you ever seen anybody tattoo like a noose on themselves or, a, like, or a, the gallows? Execution devices, an electric chair. The reason why we're able to do that is because at the cross, we see even like a beauty in how angry God is and how just he is. All at the same time, being paired at the same time in the same object, 
in the same design or cross pendant or tattoo that he is also most loving and gracious and patient with sinners. At the cross, we see how much God's heart burns in protection for people who suffer and cannot save themselves. And at the cross, we see how he is most patient and kind to those of us who neglect them. So friends, instead of you bearing the punishment and feeling the wrath of God that we all deserve, instead you are adopted into his family, you are called child, you are called beloved, you are clothed in white. Scripture says that we are white as snow without a blemish on us all. You have become a beloved child and now, now you are called ambassador, hands and feet, forgiven of sin, placed in the, among the family of God, given a place of honor, cherished and adored, and now given a call. When you, uh, you know, the songs that June and our brother June and then the praise team just led us, when you think about that, the reason why I love those songs is, is there's a clear progression that the authors have. It's for you so loved the world and gave your only son, loved us. Now, King Jesus, we love you. Our love will be strong to serve the world. There's a progression. Man of sorrow, son of God, oh, that rugged cross, my salvation. My sin is paid in full. Hallelujah unto thee. There's a progression, right? And so what I'm hoping, this stuff is heavy, I know. And frankly, I don't like preaching like, oh my, like, I hate your religious festivals. You're a stench to me. It's tough to preach. But let's not, like, as if you are forgiven and redeemed, Take it seriously. Don't brush it off. Oh, God's not really that angry. No, he is. And he took it out in his son. But there's the progression. The rugged cross. My salvation. My debt is paid in full. But now I'm called. Now I can't sit here idly. Now I am privileged. And therefore now I am responsible. We are privileged and now responsible. So now, ambassador, beloved child, will you not represent him? Will you not represent the most just person in history by fighting for justice? Will you not represent the most compassionate and loving person to walk this earth by being compassionate, showing love to those who are in need of your love, or love from anybody? Will you not fight for righteousness in the way that you represent the one who is perfectly righteous? Will you not hate what is evil and love what is good? So with the freedom of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in you, in me, let's do something. Let's hate what is evil. Let's love what is good. Let's hate what is evil and love what is good.